techniques that we've discovered that can make this a lot more difficult. So first of all, I'd like to begin with a little bit of background information on what a rootkit actually is. The defining characteristic of a rootkit is something that provides stealth on a system. Uh, Greg Hogland of rootkit.com, the founder of that, uh, which is a public online site that you can uh, visit to gain information about rootkits and free source code and so forth for them, uh, defines a rootkit as any program that subverts the standard execution path of the, of the operating system or of the system. So why is a rootkit used? Uh, what's its intent? Um, a rootkit is, is put on a system by an attacker once they break into that system. Its purpose is to hide their presence and also to give them future access to the machine. Uh, if an attacker has an exploit that is not known publicly, they will not want to continue to use that exploit in order to gain access to the system, so they will install a rootkit to give them access later. There's basically two different types of rootkits. They are user mode and kernel mode rootkits. These correspond to the four rings of the Intel architecture. However, um, the Intel x86 architecture, however, only two rings of privilege are used. And those are kernel mode, which is ring zero, and user mode, which is ring three. So the rootkit either by subverting some user mode process or API or the kernel mode APIs it acts as a man in the middle to um, facilitate or to intercept the communication between processes and the operating system. Uh, first generation rootkits were fairly simple. They basically uh, replaced um, several files on the file system themselves that the operating system used. These were like the Unix login program or the PS program, etc. That, that displayed information about the system. Second generation rootkits uh, modified static tables in memory that the OS uses. These include the import address table. Um, if you've written much Microsoft Windows code, you, know, you understand the DLL concepts. Also, um, in Linux, um, libc would be an example of tables that you can modify and to gain execution. Another place that you could uh, hook would be the function itself. So if the operating system provides a function for you, you can find that function in memory and patch it yourself. That's called a non-function hooking. <clears throat> now, I pioneered a third generation of rootkit. It's, um, I basically saw that you can modify structures in memory, the actual data structures the operating system uses to keep track of uh, processes and threads, device drivers, and security tokens. By modifying these, you do not need to gain execution, uh, so there's no altercation of the execution path itself. I've termed this uh, technique as DCOM. It's direct kernel object manipulation. And you can only do this if you're a kernel mode rootkit in ring zero. So there are basically four different types of rootkit detection. Um, they've, some of these have been around for a while. Some are fairly new. Uh, we'll, base, we'll go through what each one of these does and give some examples of each. There's behavioral detection, integrity de detection, signature-based, and difference-based approaches. <clears throat> uh, example, everyone's familiar with antivirus software. This is very common. They use signatures, so that's a signature scanner. Integrity checkers are things like Tripwire or other programs that look at uh, the disk itself, the file system. Um, Difference-based approaches are fairly new. Uh, we've only seen these more or less the last year. And their examples of these would include Microsoft Starter Ghostbuster, 
um, which they require that you boot from a clean CD, and then they compare it with a live system to see if the results are the same. Also, System Internals has a tool called Rootkit Revealer that's a different spaced approach, and F-Secure has uh, Blacklight. So, for behavioral detection, we are looking for um, evidence of the rootkit's existence. So, a common technique to do this is to look for deviations in the execution path. Uh, Joanna Rakowska has a tool that does this called Patchfinder. Uh, the technique it uses is it counts instructions, so it makes an API call, counts the number of instructions executed, and then does some, uh, lets the system run for a while and runs the same API call to see if the number of instruction counts matches. If there's a deviation, um, then she says that the system has been patched or trojanized. I have a different methodology. I look for hooks within some of those static tables that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the tool I wrote for that is called Vice. Um, you can download it from rootkit.com and it will help find rootkits on your system that um, hook the system calls. However, Vice um, currently does not run on XP or 2003. The problem with this behavioral detection is that it suffers from a high number of false positives, and it requires the user to be extremely sophisticated in order to tell what's a true threat and what's a false positive. Integrity checking is the method that's been around for quite a while in the form of tripwire. It will run a CRC check on MD5 on the system files or potentially even memory in order to check um, known good uh, signatures or known good uh, checksums against what is currently present. So if you try to alter a file on disk that is the operating system, then the CRC will not match at a later date. Signature-based detection is what AV uh, antivirus companies use, and it looks for a signature of known bad behavior. So if there's a public rootkit or some other virus or malware, um, the antivirus companies develop a signature for it and scan for the signature. <clears throat> this is fairly effective, however, it does not take into account unknown malicious software. So if the rootkit is brand new, then there will not be a signature for it. So, soon we're going to introduce Shadow Walker, and Sherry's going to talk about the techniques it uses. But the motivation for Shadow Walker is to say that we need to do um, scans not only of the file system itself, but also of memory, because although DCOM techniques and these third-generation rootkits are extremely sophisticated, they reside in a portion of memory um, where any security product can scan for them. So in order to hide the rootkit, it could go on the extra mile of actually subverting the memory scans. And we're going to talk about how that's a real threat today. So now uh, we're going to introduce Shadow Walker, and Sherry's going to explain how it works. Thank you, Jamie. Um, early viruses face the same problem that we're going to discuss regarding rootkits. Um, that is needing to hide from, um, from scanners, specifically signature-based scanners. Um, uh, the viruses introduce a technique called polymorphism. Basically, polymorphism attempts to vary the appearance of code. Um, in the English language, we have something called synonyms. These are words which are spelled differently but mean the same thing. Um, that is basically the same concept as polymorphism, the idea that you can have sequences of instructions which appear different using different sequences of instructions, but yet they, fu they are functionally equivalent. That is, they do the same thing. Um, 
Polymorphism does not actually change the view of memory. It changes the structure of the program, the actual instructions in the in the uh, in the program code. Um, polymorphism has not really been seen in um, rootkit technology, with the exception of a rootkit known as Hacker Defender, which makes a rudimentary effort at using polymorphism. Um, this technique is not necessarily optimal for hiding code in memory of a rootkit, um, because a rootkit does not only need to hide its own code, but it also needs to hide changes to operating system components as well. Um, therefore, our, our talk is going to be about virtual memory subversion, which basically subverts the actual reads of a security scanner such that when it performs a read of a given region of memory, it actually does not see the, the correct contents that are there, but yet some subverted view of, of that memory region. Um, we are going to we are going to provide a proof of concept demonstration that a rootkit is capable of transparently controlling the contents of new memory viewed by applications as well as kernel drivers in the operating system. The most important thing here, however, is the fact that our technique has a minimal performance impact. That means that when our proof of concept rootkit is installed, the user will notice will not notice any subjective impact upon the performance of their system, which makes it highly stealthy. Um, these are a few implications of virtual memory subversion. Um, basically, to date, um, most security scanners have relied upon the integrity of their view of memory. Even if they've become smarter and have, have learned that they can't rely upon the integrity of the API interface. Basically, if we can control a scanner's view of memory, we can fool signature scanners and potentially make a known rootkit or virus immune to in-memory in signature scans. We can also fool integrity checkers, like Jamie's vice. Vice attempts to detect inline hooks in a system. That is, um, the beginning of a function may be replaced by a direct jump to some malicious code. Um, this implies modifying the function and is also subject to um, integrity checking. If we do a CRC or a hash of the of the API call code, we can detect if that code has been changed by the insertion of, for example, a jump as an inline patch. Um, it, using this technique, since we control the view of memory seen by a potential scanner, we can make it appear as though that hook is not in place. Um, however, that hook is indeed there, and it actually continues to execute. It's simply the scanner cannot see it. Before we talk about Shadow Walker, we are going to do a review of some basic concepts of virtual memory. Um, we're going to talk about the idea of paging. Um, what are page tables and PTEs? Um, we're going to discuss how virtual to physical address translation occurs, the role of the page fault handler, and then the paging performance problem, why paging is ultimately very inefficient, and then how the translation look-aside buffer has been used to mitigate that problem. Um, finally, we'll discuss the memory access types provided under the Intel architecture. Um, basically, in modern architectures, we make a distinction between virtual memory and physical memory. Virtual memory is defined by the width of the processor's address bus. Under most systems, um, the width of the, of the address bus is 32 bits, even though we're now starting to see 64-bit systems. Under a 32-bit system, therefore, that means that we, have, we can address 2 to the 32 discrete memory locations. Um, this corresponds to approximately 4 gigabytes, and that, that is the size of our virtual address space. In contrast, 
The physical address space is defined by the quantity of RAM installed on a user system. Usually, the amount of RAM installed on a system is not as large as the virtual address space. Most people don't have 4 gigabytes of RAM installed on their system. Um, basically, what paging tries to do is it breaks the virtual address space and the physical address space into fixed size blocks. These blocks are known as pages and frames. Pages are the blocks in the virtual address space. Frames are the blocks in the physical address space. Um, one important thing to note is that pages map to frames, but that mapping does not have to be contiguous. The mapping information that maps a, a virtual page to a physical frame is contained in structures called PTEs, which are located in page tables. Um, this is an example of the Intel PTE format. Um, there are several interesting pieces of information contained in the PTE. Um, the first piece of information is going to be the physical frame or the page frame number, which is basically the physical address of that frame in physical memory. Um, the other information that is contained in a PTE, besides the physical address, are protection information and status information for that page of memory. Um, the most interesting bits are going to be the valid bit, which says whether or not that page is present in main memory or if it is located in the page file. The write bit, which says whether or not that page is readable and writable or if it is read-only. And also um, another bit of interest is the global bit. The global bit determines whether or not that page will be flushed from the translation look-aside buffer on a context switch. Under the x86 architecture, virtual addresses encode the information necessary to look them up in the page tables. Um, basically, they are indexes into page tables. Um, page tables may be single or multi-level. The x86 architecture, 32-bit um, architecture, defines a two-level paging scheme. And it supports both 4 kilobyte and 4 megabyte page sizes. Um, the 32-bit virtual address can basically be divided into two primary components. It can be divided into the virtual page number and the byte index. The virtual page number contains the information necessary to look up um, that page in, inside the page tables. Um, since we are dealing with a two-level scheme, we not only have page tables, but we also have a page directory as well. The page directory basically contains pointers to page tables, and then the page tables contain pointers to physical frames in memory. The byte index is simply the offset from the base address of the physical frame in memory. Um, the virtual page number is divided into two pieces itself. The page directory index, which is the upper 10 bits, and the page table index, which are the middle 10 bits. In this slide, we are going to show how the process of virtual to physical translation occurs. The kprocess block under Windows contains a pointer to the page directory for the currently executing process. CR3 contains the physical address of that page directory pointer. So when we perform a, an address translation, or rather when the CPU performs an address translation, the first thing it must do is locate the page directory. At the hardware level, it's going to look that up in CR3, which is the physical address of the page directory. The base address of the page directory is combined with the upper 10 bits, of the, which are the page directory index, to form an index into the page directory. The page directory index is going to contain the pointer to the page table, which will be the base physical ad address of that page table in memory. So now we locate the base address of the page table. From the base address of the page table, we now add the 
page table index bits to actually locate the offset into the page table, which contains the physical frame information, or the PTE. The PTE is going to contain the base physical address of the physical frame in physical memory. From this base location, we will add, we will find the exact offset in physical frame by adding the byte index to it. And this is the byte that is actually being translated. Because physical memory may be smaller than virtual memory, the OS may need to move less recently used pages to disk, um, which is the page file, in order to satisfy current memory demands. There are several cases where a page fault will occur. Um, on the most common case, a page fault will occur um, on a virtual address whose PTE is marked um, not present and whose translation is not in the TLB, or the translation look-aside buffer. This is the case where a page is not resident in main memory and has to be fetched from the page file. Um, you may also have a page fault occur on memory protection violations. This can include user mode code attempting to access kernel mode memory regions or an attempt to write to memory which has been marked as read-only. In this slide, we will provide a graphical illustration of the page fault path. On a memory access, the first thing that occurs is a lookup in the page directory to locate the correct page table. In this case, it is the page table is present. We next look up the um, physical address of the frame in the page table. In this case, that frame is not present in physical memory and it causes a page fault. A page fault causes invocation of the operating system page fault handler. It is the page fault handler's responsibility to issue the disk I.O., which goes out to the page file and brings in the frame back into physical memory. It then marks the PTE in the page table as being present. So subsequent accesses to those addresses will not generate page faults. Paging comes with a um, performance penalty. Because we have a two-level paging scheme, this means that in the best case, a single memory translation will require three memory accesses. One access to access the page directory, a second access to access the page table, and a third access to retrieve the byte from physical memory. Therefore, we can see that there is a high performance hit in using virtual memory and paging. Um, architectural designers um, developed the translation look-aside buffer to help mitigate this problem. Basically, the translation look-aside buffer is a high-speed cache that contains frequently used virtual-to-physical mappings, or PTEs. On a memory access, the TLB is first searched to determine if that translation is present. If it is present, it is termed a hit. If it is not found, it is termed a miss. Interestingly, the x86 architecture uses a split TLB. This will become important when we discuss the Shadow Walker implementation. The ITLB holds virtual to physical translations for code, while the DTLB holds virtual to physical translations for data. It is also important to note that modern TLBs have very high hit rates, therefore memory accesses seldom incur the performance of the page table walk. This next slide illustrates the um, memory access path with a TLB hit. When the memory access occurs, that memory access will either be due to an attempted execution of an instruction or to a data read or write. 
In this case, we are dealing with a code access. So we, so the processor goes out and it looks up in the ITLB to see if that translation is present. If that translation is found, we have a hit and we can go directly to physical memory. In this case, you can see that we bypass the page tables. So we bypass the memory lookups required to access the page directory and the page table, and thus increase our performance. It is possible that we will have a TLB miss. In this case, when the ITLB is searched for our reference, it is not found. In this, in this case, we must now go out to the page tables to resolve the reference. That page may not be present in main memory and will therefore also cause a page fault, incurring a further performance penalty. This will cause invocation of the page fault handler, as seen before during which the OS will, ex will issue the disk I.O., which uh, causes the, um, the OS to go out to the disk and bring in the frame into physical memory. Finally, those entries in the page table and the page directory are marked as present. Under the Intel architecture, we have two basic memory access types. Um, normally when we think of memory access, we think of three discrete levels. We think of read, write, and execute. Under the Intel architecture, execute access is actually implied. Therefore, we only have two discrete memory access types. We have read and execute access and read, write, and execute access. This is important because um, there's this idea of um, non-executable code, which has, has been discussed in the past. Um, there is basically no way for the processor to be able to mark a region of code as non-executable um, because everything is executable by default. That means that in the case of buffer overflows, that um, it would be advantageous to be able to mark a region, the stack, as being non-executable because code normally does not execute on the stack. Um, PAX is a project which implemented a software implementation of non-executable memory semantics on the Intel architecture. Our project, Shadow Walker, is related to PAX. It basically takes a, an offensive spin on a previously defensive technology. That is the way to split, read, write, and execute accesses using the Pentium architecture. Basically, our technique is the inversion of PACs. Just like PACs, we want to differentiate between read, write, and execute accesses. Because read accesses, for example, of the code section of a rootkit driver may indicate the presence of a scanner. In order to implement Shadow Walker, we must address at least three issues. The first issue is we need a way to filter, execute, and read-write accesses. The second issue is we need a way to fake the read-write memory accesses once they've been detected. Third, we need to ensure that performance is not adversely affected. In order to differentiate between execute and read-write accesses, we can trap memory accesses by marking their page table entries non-present and hooking the page fault handler interrupt, which is int 0e. In the page fault handler, we have accesses to two pieces of information which allow us to determine if that access is due to a read or write or due to an execute. First, we have the saved instruction pointer when the fault occurred. Second, we have the faulting address. If the instruction pointer equals the faulting address, then we conclude that it was an execute access. Otherwise, it was a read write. One important thing to mention here is we need to be able to differentiate between page faults due to our memory hook and normal page faults that the operating system um, may need to handle because we must work cooperatively with the operating system. For the purposes of Shadow Walker, we have placed a couple of constraints. 
The pages that we hide must reside in non-paged memory. So we never have an issue of having to figure out if that page is actually out on disk in the page file and then have to try to figure out how to bring it back into main memory. That won't occur because our hidden pages will never be paged out to disk. This simply simplifies things. Um, the other possibility would be to lock those pages down in memory. If they are pageable memory, they can be locked using an operating system API like mmprobe and lock pages. Once we have differentiated between execute and read-write, we would like to be able to fake reads and writes and executes. Basically, we wish for Basically, we wish our WorkKit code to, to run correctly, but yet if a scanner tries to read that region of memory where the code is stored, it should not actually see the code. In order to do this, we take advantage of an architectural feature in the Intel architecture. That is the use of a split TLB. Normally, the DTLB and the ITLB are synchronized. That is, the backing information for, for code references or execution points to the same physical frame as the mapping information for data accesses. That is, the ITLB and the DTLB contain the same virtual to physical mapping information. In this case, they are both pointing to frame 2. What we wish to do with our rootkit is to desynchronize the ITLB and the DTLB such that execute accesses point to a different physical frame than data accesses or read-write accesses. In this scenario, we have the ITLB pointing to the rootkit code. So execution is resolved from that virtual to physical mapping information. For data accesses, we are pointing to a separate frame which contains random garbage or something other than the rootkit code. This thus will foil a signature scanner. A signature scanner will perform a read or write upon the rootkit code section and it will receive some random data which does not correspond to the rootkit's code. The question is how to implement this desynchronization of the hardware caches or the TLBs. Um, the TLB is primarily hardware controlled, but there is a limited amount of software control which allows us to perform this desynchronization. First of all, reloading CR3, a control register in the processor, causes all TLB entries except global entries to be flushed. This occurs on a context switch. Second, the invalidate page instruction may be used to flush a specific TLB entry. Executing a data access instruction causes the DTLB to be loaded with the mapping information, but not the ITLB. In contrast, executing a call or an, or an execute causes the ITLB to be loaded, but not the DTLB. The fact that we can discreetly load either the ITLB or the DTLB enables us to perform this desynchronization. In Shadow Walker, we basically have two components. We have our memory hook engine, which consists of a hook installation module and a custom page vault handler. And we have a modified FU rootkit, which is the object being hidden by our proof of concept code. In the memory hook installation, when we go to hide a page, the first thing that we have to do is install a new page fault handler. We do this by hooking int0e, or the page fault interrupt. Second, we insert the page into a global hash table, so that when we enter the page fault handler, we will be able to perform a quick lookup on that page. Next, we mark the page not present. And finally, we flush the TLB to ensure that we trap all subsequent memory accesses in the page fault handler. 
This is because the TLB is first on the memory access path. Therefore, once we have marked the page as non-present, we do not wish to have any further translations resolved out of the TLB. We wish to load the TLB manually upon the occurrence of a page fault. In our custom page fault handler, the primary task is to filter, read, write, and execute accesses. There are several execution paths that can occur. We may either pass down the faults on unhooked pages to the OS page fault handler, or other protection violations to the OS page fault handler, or we may handle the page fault ourselves if it is to a hidden page. We will do this by either manually loading the ITLB or the DTLB with the correct mapping information. It is important to note that most, most memory references will be resolved via the TLB and will not generate page faults. However, there are cases where we will still incur a page fault. Clearly on the first execute or data accesses to the page, because when we instantiated the memory hook, we had to flush the TLB. Therefore, we are guaranteed to receive a page fault on the first memory accesses. We may also receive page faults on TLB cache line evictions. The TLB memory is much smaller than main memory. It is possible that there will be a collision between a, memory a current memory reference and a reference whose mapping information was previously stored in the TLB. Therefore, best recently used TLB mappings may be evicted to make room for current mappings. Also, we may have a TLB, we may incur a page fault on an explicit TLB flush. That would be execution of invalidate page instruction or reloading of CR3 on a context switch. FU is a um, proof of concept rootkit which we have hidden with our memory hook engine. It runs as a system thread and regularly scans the list of active, active processes looking for processes named underscore fu underscore and then unlinks them. This is the DCOM technique described by Jamie previously. This rootkit has no dependence upon user land initialization, which means that it has no symbolic link and no functional device. This is to make it more stealthy. This rootkit is also an in-memory rootkit. Um, it could be installed via a kernel exploit to avoid disk detection. The impact on system performance is an, is an important thing to note as well, because it determines how, how well this rootkit will perform in the wild. Because we mentioned previously that modern TLBs have extremely high hit rates, most translations will in fact go through the TLB without generating the performance penalty of page faults. In our subjective test, by installing our memory hook engine hiding the FU rootkit driver, there is no noticeable impact upon system performance. This also makes this technique viable for other forms of malicious code beyond rootkits. That is, worms, viruses, and other forms of spyware which may wish to hide from a user on a system. Our current implementation is a proof-of-concept rootkit. It is not a weaponized attack tool. As such, there are a number of limitations currently. First, we do not provide PAE support. We also do not provide hyper-threading or multiprocessor support. This support could be added, the primary issue being added complexity with synchronization. We also currently only hide 4K sized kernel pages. That is, we are not currently hiding user mode pages. Support for user mode page hiding could be added, um, but we have not done it yet because we were aiming for a simple implementation. We are also currently unable to hide the 4 megabyte page upon which NTOS kernel resides.
This is due to the fact that that four megabyte page also contains code for HAL, the hardware abstraction layer, as well as many of the interrupt handlers for the system and part of non-paged pool. Clearly marking a page present, or marking a page non-present, which contains the system interrupt handlers, is going to cause problems. We have not solved this particular issue yet. Um, regarding detection of Shadow Walker, there are several avenues for detection. The current implementation, as I said, is proof of concept, meaning that it's relatively easily detected. First of all, non-present pages in the non-paged memory range are abnormal. This is a heuristic that might be used to detect the presence of Shadow Walker. It may not, however, be a sufficient heuristic to say whether or not the rootkit is installed. There is also a problem concealing the page fault handler code itself. The page fault handler cannot be concealed using the Shadow Walker technique. This is because of the issues involved with marking the page fault handler non-present in memory. Um, the solution for hiding the page fault handler may be to use viral polymorphism. Since the handler is relatively small, does not rely upon any operating system calls, and is written in assembly language, um, it, should be, uh, it should be reasonable to think that it could be concealed using a polymorphic approach. Um, it is also difficult to conceal our hooks on the interrupt descriptor table. Currently, we are using a direct hook on the interrupt descriptor table of int0e for the page fault handler. An inline hook might be more stealthy. Um, lastly, we cannot protect against remapping attacks. Um, currently, most scanners do not implement anything of this sort. However, it is possible to remap the physical address space to a new virtual address. Um, there are also hardware memory scanners which will have direct access to physical memory and bypass the paging mechanism. Um, Shadow Walker will be, will be easily detected by a hardware-based memory scanner. One thing that is interesting to note, as in all security, there is a balance between offensive and defensive technologies. Here in this talk, we have spoke about the offensive technologies of Shadow Walker. However, the exact same concepts could be applied defensively. For example, rootkits and other malicious code often compromise software security via inline patching or in-memory patching. Execute diverted read-write semantics provide by provided by Shadow Walker could also be used to provide lightweight code integrity. That is, the firewall or the intrusion detection driver's code would continue to run. However, attempts to patch that memory by a rootkit would be deflected off to another page frame where they would, would not affect the execution of the security software. The fact that most translations are resolved via the TLB, and we've discussed there is a minimal performance hit, might make this a viable technology. At this point, I'm going to perform a short demo. The first thing I'm going to run is a copy of Notepad. We can see this a process appear in the Windows process list. The next thing I'm going to do is install the FU rootkit. This rootkit has not been hidden yet by Shadow Walker. Now we return to the list of processes, and we can see that Notepad has indeed been hidden.
We can now enter into soft ice, a kernel debugger, and view the region of memory where the rootkit has been loaded. I do this by executing the mod command, which will show me the base address of the loaded module. In this case, our rootkit has been named MSDirectX. We now obtain the base address of MSDirectX in memory, and we can display the, excuse me, the contents of that memory. This should appear normal. This is the PE file format signature common to Windows executable applications and drivers, the NZ being the indicator. So we can see that the code for the rootkit is plainly visible in memory. Next, we are going to load the Shadow Walker memory hook engine. This will hide the code of the rootkit. We now enter back into SoftIce and view the memory of the rootkit driver. The question marks indicate that that page has, is marked as non-present. If we execute the mod command again, One thing that you will note is that the PE header information, or the pointer to the PE header, is now zero. This is because SoftIce is reading the information stored in that memory region and attempting to calculate the address of the PE header. We are deflecting the reads and writes of that memory region off to a frame containing zeros. Therefore, SoftIce retrieves zeros when it attempts to read that region of memory and calculate the PE header. We can stop the memory hook driver, and now we will be able to view that region of memory again. This concludes our demonstration. Um, we would be pleased to field any questions at this time. If there are no questions, we will be available at the speaker table after our talk. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, analyzing the page fault handler is going, it is going to become a necessary component of all uh, serious antivirus. Yes. Um, the page fault handler is certainly a weakness in detecting Shadow Walker presently. Um, however, the page fault handler may be able to be concealed using a viral polymorphic technique. But ultimately, shouldn't there be... Are there, do, do, do you believe there are no components of the Shadow Walker technology that have only one implementation? Like, it, it sounds like this is a fairly unique string of instructions that has to be done in order to do, to do this. Could you explain your okay, question? Well, I'll, I'll clarify. Have you, have, you, have you done any experiments with polymorphics on this? I have not written any polymorphic code for Shadow Walker. Actually, yet. better question. How complicated is the page fault handler? Is it complicated or simple? The page fault handler is relatively simple. It's a couple of pages of assembly instructions. Sure. Basically, the, the sole purpose of the page fault handler is to provide the TLB desynchronization on page faults. Mm -hmm. This is relatively uh, simple to implement in the page fault handler. So if you use polymorphism, you can obscure the fact that it is a rootkit, i.e. the code won't detect to a particular signature, but wouldn't it still be vulnerable to diffing against what you expect the OS page fault handling code to be? Yes, and that brings up another weakness um, that we discussed. Um, that is hiding the hook on the interrupt descriptor table. 
Um, it is very difficult to hide hooks on the interrupt descriptor table. Currently, we are using a direct patch of the interrupt descriptor table, meaning that if a scanner follows the pointer for the page fault handler and does a diff against what it expects to see for the OS page fault handler, it will indeed see that there's something there that shouldn't be there. However, in order to make Shadow Walker more stealthy, we might be able to provide an inline hook or a patch in the operating system's page fault handler, preferably at some point relatively far into the execution path of the page fault handler. Uh, so uh, Jamie's vice was specifically looking at inline function hooks, correct? Yes. And so you're saying the suggested result would be to just place the inline function hook fairly deeper at some arbitrary point in the execution path, so you can't just look at the first few bytes of the function address. Correct. Okay. Any further questions? すいません。あの、今回はWindowsのBootKitという感じで、ま、実装されてると思うんですけれども。え、今回はですね、あの、WindowsのBootKitという感じで、え、ま、この実装されていると思うんですが、同じようなことはこれは例えばえ、Linux I believe what the gentleman is asking is can this technology be applied to different operating systems or is it Windows specific? The answer to that question is this technique can be applied generically because it takes advantage of a feature in the hardware, not an operating system specific feature. Linux must also deal with the fact that there exists a split TLB architecture, meaning that Linux and any other operating system which is built upon the Intel architecture is also vulnerable to this form of attack. What would you ask for if you could get anything you wanted out of a hardware vendor, out of a chip vendor? Like what would help? Well, a, um, a commercially available hardware memory scanner would be a step in the right direction. Um, obviously, there, to my knowledge, I have not seen any on the market, although there is some research um, which has been discussed um, called Copilot, um, which was presented in an academic paper which attempts to uh, provide a PCI card for performing physical memory scans. Um, Shadow Walker will fail in the presence of a hardware-based scanner. However, it is important to note that the hardware-based scanner is going to be quite limited in its view of memory. It will only be able to view the physical address space. It will not be able to rely upon the page table information, or it will risk also receiving compromised information. I have two questions. One is, what's the purpose of the split TLB? Older architectures with which I'm more familiar have a unified TLB. Um, from the architectural perspective, I honestly couldn't tell you what, what the performance benefit is of a split TLB. Well, but that would be an implementation perspective. Is is this the fact that it's split visible to architecturally? Um, the split TLB is not visible to software. Okay, and my other question is, does anything the Trusted Computing Platform Alliance is doing address the question of trustworthiness of things at this level, or is that a silly question? T to my knowledge, it does not. Any further questions? We will be available at the speaker table after the talk.